She's hysterical. She talks about her boy, her son. She said, like, like he. I won't do it just but she said, she said, you have to go down and charge If I hear that gospel, And we come to a. Uh, a very familiar passage today. Uh, and sadly, we're all too familiar with the very public failures of well-known celebrity Christian pastors and leaders. You may have uh, perhaps experienced your own less than public failures of faith. Maybe, maybe you're at work and you stayed silent or at, or at school when others were disparaging the name of Christ or the Christian faith and you stayed silent. Or maybe you've had that golden platter opportunity to speak of Christ and you just didn't say a word. Yeah, out of fear maybe of what others might think. Or maybe you've uh, denied being one of Jesus' followers by by secretly living a, a covert Christian, Sunday Christian life. Or maybe you've denied him by your actions, making choices and living in ways that are not compatible with following Christ. Things done in secret from others are no secret to Christ, of course. But now, in, in these times of failure, when, when the Holy Spirit convicts you and, and shows you your failure, what are you to do? Are you a lost cause like Judas? Is there, is there hope for restoration? Today, we're going to look at one of the Bible's most famous failures and, and see how it's contrasted with the ultimate example of faithfulness. And we're going to discover how there is such great hope for failures. So we're going to get to the Word now and, and see this for ourselves. So grab your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 12. I'll read through verse 27. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1074. Once you're there, I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word as as I read. Please follow along with me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? 
He said, I am not. Now the servants of the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. So Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word is, is God-breathed, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Holy Spirit, be our teacher in these moments in the school of grace. Open our eyes to behold the beauty of Christ in his word. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, remember the context here. Jesus has just spent several hours with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And as he returns to the Father by way of the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus promised to send his followers the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be with them and indwell them that he might teach them and guide them in his physical absence. Jesus has prayed for the glory of God to be revealed through him, and he has prayed for the unity of his followers that will be a compelling testimony to the world. Last week we saw the darkness that all of human history has has been building to, cresting like a wave in that dark garden. And in today's passage, Jesus is finally bound and arrested. Now, this is a marvelous passage where John just masterfully weaves together the stories of Peter's famous failure with the perfect faithfulness of of Jesus, our Savior. These narratives are intertwined. And I, I want to look at these two narratives and show you the hope of Jesus for failures. And so my three points this morning are going to be this. Uh, first, we're going to examine Peter's failure. Secondly, we're going to look at Christ's unwavering faithfulness as our Savior. And then finally, we're going to see, uh, specifically, we're going to drill into the, the hope uh, that there is for failures. So let's jump in now by looking at Peter's failure and what we can learn about Uh, the nature of his failure and our own. First, Peter was self-reliant and overconfident. Look down at verse 27. This should call to your mind the conversation Peter had earlier that evening with Jesus. Look at chapter 13, verses 36 and 38. This is what verse 27 is alluding to. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Pretty bold words here from Peter. I will lay down my life for you. Look at the the parallel passage from Matthew's gospel. Peter says uh, that even though everyone else may fall away, I will never fall away. Essentially, Peter is elevating himself to the status of Jesus is number one. I'm your number one follower. I'm your number one disciple. I'm your most devoted follower. Even though everyone else falls away, not me. Right? He's, he's overconfident. Consider this now. Jesus, in the moments leading up to his rest, was, was found to be in prayer with the Father. Remember his prayer in chapter 17 that we looked at recently? But in the other Gospels, we learn that Jesus also asked his disciples to pray with him. But they fail to be faithful to pray in these moments as Jesus asked them. Look what he says to Peter in Matthew's Gospel. This is chapter 26, verses 40 and 41. Uh, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's failure to pray gave in to the weakness of his flesh. Remember what what Jesus taught him in in John chapter 15. Again, we saw this recently. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's all talk and no action. Peter's failure here in our text is is a direct result of his failure to abide. Now, we should ask ourselves a related question. Am I trying to follow Jesus in my own strength? We can do lots of things in ministry that give the illusion of ministry success when really we're doing it all in our own strength. And sooner or later, it will all come crashing down. And sadly, in too many instances, in a display of public failure. And the second thing to notice about Peter's failure here is that when when he had an opportunity to reveal his relationship to Jesus, he conceals it instead We've already seen his failure to abide in prayer. But look at verse 15. John, John says that Simon Peter followed Jesus. Okay, But Luke chapter 22 tells us how Peter followed Jesus. In Luke twenty two fifty four, 54, we read these words. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Peter followed at a distance. He didn't want to appear to be too close to Jesus. And that's how it starts. He's concealing the fact that he's a follower of Jesus. And from here, it's a slippery slope. 
Look where this ultimately leads Peter. You can see this in a small detail in the narrative in, in verse 27. Look at this. Peter, Peter denies being with Jesus in the garden. Now look back at verse 18. We see this small detail again. We see that Peter is standing around a fire with, with the enemies of Christ. So he denies being with Jesus and yet he is with the enemies of Christ. And here's the principle. Concealing your identity in Christ will always move you closer to those who oppose Christ and further away from Christ himself. A lack of abiding in prayer and, and distancing himself from Jesus, Peter now finds himself not with Christ, but with those who oppose him. And now Peter is completely unprepared for what's about to come next. The third thing we see in Peter's failure is that he abandoned Jesus by denying to be his follower. In verse 17, a servant girl asks, Are, are you not also one of this man's disciples? As if to imply that following Jesus is ridiculous or backwards. The way this question is asked, you could imagine that there might be a tinge of sneer uh, in here. And maybe Peter was caught off guard, had a moment of weakness, but he certainly wasn't prepared. He denies being a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been in the company of others who disparage the Christian faith. Maybe it's at work or your peer group at school. And maybe it's out of a desire to be liked and to fit in or to advance your career or your social status by either concealing your your faith or by denying it altogether. Fourthly, notice another small detail in this narrative. Twice, John tells us this. Once we see it in verse 18 and then again in verse 25 that, that Peter was warming himself around a fire in the company of Christ's enemies. Peter's failure of faith caused him to seek the comfort on a cold night, not with Jesus, but around the fire of those who opposed him. This is how it will always be in this world. It will always be more comfortable from a worldly perspective, to deny Jesus and to warm ourselves around worldly things. Peter's failure starts off subtle. Uh, and his eventual denial is just three small words. And this is how it is for us, too. With small compromises and denials, we end up somewhere we never wanted to be. In 1979, 275 people left New Zealand for a sightseeing flight to Antarctica. Unknown to the pilots, there was a two-degree error in the flight coordinates. Most would probably think that's close enough. But that two-degree error, in fact, placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of their planned route. As the pilots approached what they thought was their intended destination, to give the sightseers a better look of the beautiful landscapes, they descended to a lower altitude. Although the pilots had years of experience, they had never made this particular flight before. So they had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates had placed them directly in the path of Mount Erebus, 
an active volcano that rises from the frozen landscape to a height of more than 12,000 feet. And sadly, the plane crashed into the side of the volcano, killing everyone on board. And it's hard to imagine how such an epic tragedy like this was brought on by such a small error, a matter of only two degrees. So heed the Lord's instructions to Peter in the garden to pray, to pray that you may not enter into temptation because even small, unchecked compromises and denials will ultimately take you where you don't want to go. Now let's look at the contrast of Jesus' faithfulness here in our second point. First, while not directly in our text, but just before it, in John 17, we see Jesus, unlike Peter, abiding in prayer. And while not uh, in John 17, the other Gospels include other details of Jesus' prayer in the garden, especially as Jesus prays to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that this trial would be so intense that he drew near to the Father. It was going to get intense, so he had to draw near to the Father. How often do we do that in our lives when we know there's a challenging event coming up in our lives? Are we driven to prayer? Are we driven to abide? Secondly, where, where Peter concealed his identity, Jesus reveals his In verse 19, Annas questions Jesus about his teaching. He replies that, I've always spoken openly to the world. Whether in synagogues or in the temple, I've said nothing in secret. Jesus is not denying anything here. And then he tells Annas, why ask me? Ask ask anyone who's heard my teachings. And the point here is that, that Jesus has nothing to hide. He's revealed his identity on many, many occasions. In the temple in John 2, he declared himself to be the new temple that they would tear down and he would rebuild again in three days. And at the synagogue in Capernaum in John 6, Jesus tells the people that he is the true manna. He's the true bread from heaven. He says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And again, at the temple in John 10, Jesus proclaimed that he and the Father are one. Jesus is the most perfect revelation of the Father. And they knew exactly what he meant because after he said it, they picked up stones to stone him to death. Thirdly, while Peter abandoned Jesus by denying him, Jesus protected Peter and the other disciples In verse 19, Annas didn't just ask Jesus about his teaching, he also asked asked Jesus about his disciples and noticed that Jesus says nothing about his disciples. He only spoke about his teachings. This is because Jesus was protecting Peter. He was protecting the other disciples. And we saw this in last week's passage too in the garden when Jesus tells them to arrest him, but to let his followers go. And Jesus tells us, Uh, Or John tells us in verse 9 that the reason for this was to fulfill Jesus' words, that he would not lose any of those that the Father has given him. And so, too, we see this same principle at place here in our text. Fourthly, while Peter chose the comforts of the world, as he warmed himself around the fire of Jesus' enemies, Jesus chose the discomfort of abuse by remaining faithful 
We see this in verse 22, and one of the officials of Annas struck Jesus with his hand. Likely frustrated that this trial was not going to plan, but we know that this was not a surprise to Jesus either. Because in, in verse 4 of chapter 18, John says that Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen to him, came forward. And this was just a small, this was, this is just a small discomfort compared to what was about to come. And all of it is the cost of faithfulness that Jesus chose to endure. So as these two narratives are intertwined, it's against this dark backdrop of Peter's failure that the brilliance of Jesus' faithfulness just shines all the brighter. So I hope that you can see that this morning. Now finally, let's look at hope for failures. What is the hope for failures here? First, understand that if there was a poster child For the cream of the crop of Jesus' followers, it would be Peter. He was one of the inner three. We see him spending perhaps the most time with Jesus throughout the Gospels. He's the one who confessed Christ, on which Christ says he will build his church. He, He saw Jesus in his glory as he was transfigured on the mountain. And now if if Peter is the best, if he's the best of the best and he failed, anyone can fail. From the least of us to the greatest of us, including you, including me. So do not be overconfident, as Peter was. Do not attempt to follow Jesus in your own strength. Remember, remember we must abide in Christ, the true vine. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Most often this manifests itself as a a drought of prayer and, and being in the word. But if we're honest... We've all denied Christ in some way, shape, or form. We've all made those small compromises. And you must not let that shipwreck your faith. Because there's hope. There is hope for restoration. Towards the end of of John's gospel, in chapter 21, we're going to see... in the coming weeks as we, as we move through John's gospel, we're going to see Peter restored by the Lord. And while Peter denied Jesus on a cold, dark night, warming himself around a fire with Christ's enemies, Peter will be restored on a cool, refreshing morning around another fire, a fire lit by Jesus himself. Now look back at verse 27 again. Remember, uh, this should cause us to think of, of Christ's prediction of Peter's denial. Well, in Luke's gospel account, just before Jesus predicts Peter's denial, Jesus gives another prediction. Take a look at Luke twenty-two thirty-one and 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is right before Jesus predicts Peter's uh, denial. He says these words. You see it though? Jesus says to Peter, and when you have turned again. Jesus knows that Satan is going to sift Peter and that he will fail 
But his failure will not be fatal. He will turn again. Church, your denials do not make you a Judas. There is hope for restoration. You must see Christ for who he truly is and respond to him in faith. That's the way out. John reminds us of of Caiaphas' words in verse 14 when he spoke better than he knew that one man, that it's better for one man to die for the people. Jesus would die for the people, but not in a way that Caiaphas had imagined. Jesus would be bound, as we see in our text, but he would be bound that you might be set free from your bondage to sin and death. You need to see Jesus as he truly is and respond accordingly. In 1906, a liberal theologian named Albert Schweitzer wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. This is a book I had to read in in Bible school and give a critique of it. In it, he, uh, along with many who sadly followed his teachings, concluded that Jesus was a mistaken idealist, confused, he was a confused victim. In his book, Schweitzer famously wrote these words, There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on the last revolution that is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has, uh, he has uh, destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man, who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual rule of mankind and to bend history to his purpose, is hanging upon it still. This is the victory. This is his victory and his reign. Now, now understand that Jesus was innocent. He was innocent. But this does not mean that he was a victim. Victims have no control. We saw last week that Jesus was in complete control of his final moments. Remember his words in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down I have authority to take it up again. You see, if Jesus was only a victim, he's only someone that we should feel sorry for. That's how we respond to a victim. We feel sorry for them. We have sympathy. But this is not how we should respond to Jesus because he was not a victim. And Jesus is not even a brave martyr whose bold faith would inspire courage. The true Jesus will not allow us to view him as a helpless victim or as a brave martyr. There's only one way to properly see Jesus, and he is our faithful Savior. His life is not taken from him. It's he who instead lays it down willingly that he would take it back up in three days and rise from the dead as the great victor over sin and death. You see, we don't need a victim to die in our place. We don't need an example to show us how to die with courage. We need a rescuer who can trust Jesus to be your faithful Savior. 
to deliver you from sin, death, and hell, and to give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your Holy Spirit, by which you open our eyes to behold Christ from your word. Help us to see Jesus as he really is, not as a victim, not as a brave martyr, but as our faithful Savior. We thank you, Jesus, that while oftentimes we fail, and the enemy may use this to discourage us and tell us that it's no use following Jesus because we're such big failures, Father, help us to see that there's always a way back to you. Help us, give us eyes to see you as a faithful Savior. Help us to keep coming back to you. Draw us again and again to the bottomless well of your grace for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.